This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR 102.7 FM. Uh, my name is Thomas Caldwell. On the show with me tonight for the last time in 2015, Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Good evening to you all. Good evening. We've been practising, Thomas. We finally nailed it. Last <laughs> show. <laughs> now, look, we're going to look at our favourite films of 2015 during the next hour. We've each selected our favourite ten films that were released in Melbourne this year. We're not going to make any claims about them being the best, but they're our favourites. Yes, we are. Mine are the best. Settle down, Plato's Cave. <laughs> All right, we're going to say that these are the superior ones and every other film is wrong. Um, most of the films are ones that we actually also selected as a group when we did uh, a kind of group effort in the latest edition of The Trip. That's the Triple R magazine that subscribers uh, get. Uh, do note that list was done in late October, so we did miss out on films released in late uh, in, in, in November and December. I just wanted to, to quickly reference that all the films we're going to all the films on that list found their way into tonight's show, with one exception, which is National Gallery. So a quick shout-out to Frederick Wiseman's documentary, National Gallery. Aww. It's an observational documentary that you're not meant to say is an observational documentary. <laughs> <laughs> but look, between the four of us, there are six double-ups, one triple-up, and only two films that all of us had in our personal top tens, resulting in 25 films that we're going to mention between now and 8pm. Josh, you were the person most likely to agree with some Somebody else, Cerise, you <laughs> and I. That I, love, I love that award. I know. Thank you, Cerise. You and I were the most contrary. We've got five films each that nobody else chose. Uh, no one understands us, Thomas. Exactly. Well, look, but nevertheless. I think the majority of the films that we're going to mention are ones that everybody here appreciates to some degree. There's a few that may fall through the cracks there, but I think (laughs) the worst that we can say about many of the... some of the films is that we didn't love it as much as the others or had a few issues with it. But look, enough of that. We're going to focus on The Love. It's our final show as a group for 2015, so we're going to focus on what we liked about cinema in 2015. We're going to start with one of Josh's selections, Foxcatcher. Yeah, I loved this film. This is from director Bennett Miller, whose previous works, Moneyball and Capote, I also thought were outstanding. This is the film about the two wrestling brothers played by Mark Ruffalo and Channing Tatum. They get sort of sequestered into the world of a DuPont man played by Steve Carell in a very dramatic role. Uh, this, look, there's so much I loved about this film, but particularly the way it, it weds uh, a narrative about class, uh, gender, sexuality, a lot of the themes that I mentioned when we talked about the boxing film and also earlier in this year, and also the way it weds in Reagan era politics in a contemporary film in a film that is stunningly beautiful but I think what put this over the line for me as one of my all-time favorites was that it's the perfect example I thought of the show don't tell approach to filmmaking which really appeals to me it's everything is boiling under the surface it's not it's not spelled out the relationship between all the men and how they develop is just explored through the mise-en-scene and through the structure and through the kind of the the poetry of the of the cinematic language that Bennett uh, Miller uses it's a hell of a strong film now I forgot to mention that all the films we're mentioning in this first segment had the very loose theme of being about family relationships or pseudo families and Foxcatcher there's very much both a family and a pseudo family that forms in that film which takes us to the next film, which has a very strong kind of uh, symbolic family, and that was the re-release of 54, but a a director's cut, which was quite different to its original release. This is one that you picked, uh, Alex. 
Wow, I thought you were going to... Yeah, yeah. sorry, I was pointing at Therese. No, this is actually one that you picked. I think we all love this film, but it made its way into your top ten. It it certainly did. I think I added it at the last minute because I forgot that it was technically a new release this year. It's Um, it's different enough to warrant being a new release, isn't it? It really is. I think that we said at the time when we talked about this film that this is a a director's cut that is as great as the original version was kind of sucky. I never thought this is not the year that I thought that I would go on the record for defending Michael Myers as a great dramatic dramatic actor and yet here we are this is um uh mark christopher made this film in the late 90s that focused on studio 54 nightclub uh in new york city very iconic kind of 70s disco glitter scene um film that that just got butchered by the studio on its initial release to make it straighter basically they just cut out all that nasty queer stuff um and what was released in cinemas at the time was a kind of critically savaged piece of garbage um really uninteresting film that sort of spelled ruin for many of the people involved specifically mark christopher's career who really uh, didn't really take off the way that it should have which we know now that seeing this director's cut this fabulous fabulous film it's just and as you said it's like a family you know the, the sort of the family that you build the community that you build with your friends um just a really passionate intelligent wonderful film one of the films i picked had a very strong uh, mother-daughter relationship even though the characters were, were dead by the time that the, the mother character was dead during the course of the actual film and that was a film that screened quite early in the year called wild by the, the french canadian director jean-marc valet uh french canadian directors feature a lot tonight in fact uh wild was based on the memoir of cheryl strayed who's portrayed in this film by reese witherspoon and on paper this looked like the last kind of film i wanted to see uh, a, a woman or uh, anybody a person takes a long journey to find themselves. But this this film married her physical hardship so beautifully to the context of these very painful memories she was working through, uh, you know, especially her grief at losing her mother, played by Laura Dern, who's fabulous in this film as well. Uh, Wild was just a really thoughtful film about grief, recovery and self-acceptance. A slightly more abrasive film that we're going to put into our sort of pseudo-family category is The Tribe. Cerise and Alex, this featured on both your lists. Jesus, this is a tough one to to shoehorn into that particular... I'm doing um, so much shoehorning tonight. Get ready. Well, it depends what you think of families. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. Ah, wow. I mean, this was the harrowing film experience of the year and also the one that was... uh, most uh, had had the most singular approach to um, film language and uh, the experience of viewing a film, or especially to, to listening to one. This is that uh, Ukrainian dystopian boarding school set film uh, in which a, a cast and indeed all the characters are entirely unable to speak as we are used to it in film. It's uh, all the language in this film is signed. Uh, and none of it's subtitled. So almost all of us are on an equal playing field in terms of spectatorship, with the exception of those few folks out there who actually understand any sort of sign language and can presumably read more into actual the particularity of the exchanges. The rest of it is up for us to interpret it. Uh, to some extent, that's not that hard, um, but that's not to say that this is easy viewing, even once you do get into the film's rhythm and start to get the sense of what all this gesticulating means. This is one harrowing film with uh, two of the most brutal sequences uh, committed to film all year, and um, a complete mastery of his craft exhibited by the unbelievably feature uh, debut filmmaker, uh, Miroslav Slavoj 
I, I, the mind boggles as to what he might accomplish next. I don't know where you go when your first film is The Tribe, but it's just an absolutely gobsmacking accomplishment. I agree. Um, this is probably one of my equal second favourite films for the year. The, the ultimate compliment that I feel that I can give a film is to say that I've never seen anything like it. And I can honestly say I was not prepared for this film. I can't imagine having that experience again, the particular experience that I had with The Tribe. It's just unparalleled, just an incredibly incredibly powerful film. Another film about family is Mummy. This is one that another French-Canadian film popped up on Josh and Cerise's list. Josh? Yeah, another young, bloody talented director doing things well beyond his uh, his years, the French-Canadian filmmaker Xavier Dolan. Look, I, I thought this was a really fascinating film. It was one of the strongest dramatic works in terms of the performances of the, the three main uh, actors and the, and the three characters, the, the single mother, the son fresh out of juvenile detention and the neighbour, teacher neighbour across the road who's dealing with traumas of her own and remarkable in a, in a visual sense for being filmed predominantly in a 4-3 ratio with one or two exceptions that carried a weight of power that I wasn't expecting at the time and I thought you know, he just continues to evolve as a filmmaker and in this case do some very interesting things with the, the melodrama genre. That little bit of play with the aspect ratio is quite something actually. It's a real moment and it's not just a little bit of formal um, play for the sake of it. It really is actually very moving. Um, but yeah, the, the performances in this, I don't know how someone so young can extract such mature performances from actors. I mean, sure, I understand these actors are there to act and they have actorly skills, but nonetheless, he, he must be able to be some sort of actor whisperer, I think, because uh, everyone in this film is spectacular. And it's uh, ultimately incredibly moving. I, I found this very upsetting, um, but utterly compelling throughout its entire runtime. He's a terrific filmmaker, Xavier Don. He's probably made at least another seven films since. Do we, <laughs> are, are we up to speed with where he's at already, or, or not so much yet? Do we know? Um, he has got another, this, another one yeah. in the works. I, I can't remember the details off the top of my head, but it's got an extraordinary cast. I yeah. remember reading the cast list thinking, wow, this guy just keeps going from strength to strength. How old is he? Uh, Twelve. Oh, <laughs> he's... Mid twenties now. I think. The, the, the fetal, fetal yeah. Well, Tom at the farm had barely come out when this came out too. Yeah. So, and that's yeah. a terrific film as well. I think that so. was on our list last year. In fact, yeah. Tom at the farm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of strong dramas, probably from the other end of the spectrum of Mummy, but another one, Josh, you picked, but Alex, you also selected Creed. Josh, you saw it twice. You've you've seen it the mo most recently. Yeah, I was unsure whether this slipped into my top ten just because it was probably the most recent uh, addition. Well, with one that I think we haven't mentioned yet. Um, so I decided to rewatch it to see if I just caught up in some some man cry time. And no, it is just as remarkable on a second viewing. In fact, some of the faults that I I had with it uh, when we reviewed it a couple of weeks ago, I actually wanted to retract because I think the final fight scene does pack a bit more of a punch than I gave it credit for on the first going. I think this is it. Yeah, for, for all the reasons we talked about a couple of weeks ago really strong film and I, like, I honestly think this film will do pretty well come awards season. Can we, can we make a, a, an estimate, what, what's the word? A prediction yeah. of Best Cinematographer Let's hope um, so. for this one and I'm, I'm hoping that this is at least nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Stallone. Yeah, he's long overdue. Yeah, I, 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 I think, think this is his time. If nothing else, the fact that it's been he's been such an elected actor, this might be the year next year that he gets the Academy Award nod. Which should, I mean, we all pretend that we don't care about the Academy Awards, but we kind of do. It's that it's one of those um, 
really contradictions of film critics. We pretend not to care about <laughs> awards, but we secretly do. Well, we care as soon as they get them terribly wrong, but then yeah. when they get them right, we are actually quite pleased, just yeah. quietly. Yeah. Quietly validated. Yeah. Uh, another drama I, I picked this year was Far From the Madding Crowd, Thomas Vinterberg's rather sublime adaptation of the Thomas Hardy novel for some more ye olde dramatic work. This is Carrie Mulligan, who's been at least in another film, I and mean, she's in Suffragette, which also opens Boxing Day. Um, just an actor who I, I adore. I think she goes from strength to strength, and she does some of her best work in Far From the Madding Crowd. I mean, there's something quite old-fashioned about the kind of core structure of the film, but also it's quite a progressive character, and I think this film teases out the progressive nature of the of the character and, and the story. You know, she is an incredibly strong, determined woman who at the same time has, you know... A, a, intellectual, emotional and sexual needs, which are, each one of those needs are fulfilled by a different person and she kind of has these interactions with these three men yeah, a battle between the emotion, thoughts and, and, and desire um, and trying to figure out which is the right one that she should be with and we know who that is from the very, very start and that just creates this delicious sexual tension and romantic longing throughout the entire film. I, yeah, really loved Far From the Madding Crowd. And it also provided us with perhaps the funniest moment in the cave this year. <laughs> So go back and listen to the podcast from the... the oh, this was, this oh, was a mispronounced... No, no, there was, <laughs> a, character, Fanny, there was a character called and Fanny. And there show nuts. That's right. Fanny and Matthias show nuts. The word, the word Fanny, I think, turned yes. this, is meant, this is meant to be the best of 2015. <laughs> that was and my highlight of the year. Was, that, yeah, I have never laughed harder. <laughs> we should put together a reel of all our horrible mispronunciations that resulted in innuendo. <laughs> um, we're going to... F- Finish this segment before going to some music with uh, the film that all three of you selected, which is The Duke of Burgundy. Which, Cerise, I don't think you were here when we got to review it, so why don't you take the lead? I think you had a show while I was overseas that had that, possibly The Tribe in that same episode and something else. It was that Tangerine and Black Sunday. It was like a Cerise Memorial episode. (laughs) (laughs) This happened more than once when I was overseas. The Duke of Burgundy I did miss out as well. Uh, The Tribe I missed out as well. Yeah, I kept missing the things that I was most keen that we somehow cover oh this is such a stunningly beautiful dreamy film uh, imbued with the spirit of uh, 60s into 70s European classy art house erotica and a hint of the Czechoslovak new wave soundtrack uh, wise um, think of films like Valerie and her week of wonders in fact just the mood of that film too and it's uh, erotic um, under into overtones I think the Duke of Burgundy is easily the best film ever made which is entirely peopled by female lepidopterists. I don't think <laughs> I big am... Big call, Cerise. Yeah, it's a big call, but I'm willing to stake my <laughs> reputation on that call. It's stunning. Um, I, I actually can't wait to catch up with it again. I missed it when it came to cinemas here. I caught it overseas, and I haven't caught up with it. In, has it been released in home entertainment yet? Because I've been dying No, to... it's been delayed yeah. because the I, I don't think they were expecting a cinema release. It was going to be festival. Um, I might be guessing here, but yeah, it, it's on its way for home yeah. entertainment. So Peter Strickland, the director, Barbarian Sound System previously, and what was the... Catalan Catalan Vaga? Ah, Studio. Catalan Vaga, yeah. Studio. Yeah, he's he's a guy really clued up. He knows his cinema, and he also knows how to make it. Uh, both uh, a tribute to the cinema he so adores, but also v- still feels really fresh. He's a master. I totally agree. This is absolutely one of my favourite films of the year. It's really uh, un- unparalleled in a lot of lot of ways. Um, the performances by the two women in this film are just remarkable. What I like about this is the way that he uses genre as a kind of 
palette. You know, he doesn't do these kind of heavy references. He's not Quentin Tarantino, but he uses... So if, if you're aware of the kind of um, references, particularly to that kind of 70s Euro porn kind of uh, Euro, sorry, porno chic stuff. So, you know, people like uh, Radley Metzger, um, the Emmanuel films, Story of O, all of that kind of stuff. If you know that stuff, this is a very rich film. But if you're not aware of those references, you're not really left out. Um, and I, I love that there's a really, there's a beautiful sense of in- inclusivity to his film. You know, he's not kind of gloating. Um, the performances in this film are just remarkable. They're really intense. I think it's a really clever film that's not smug at any particular point. Um, I, I think it's very much. I mean, he Strickland was originally thinking of doing a, a Jess Franco remake, and he decided against it. But I think that this shares a lot of the spirit of Jess Franco's filmmaking, um, in its its love of bodies and what they can do, and passions, and all those beautiful things. And I was one of those people who, for whom the references were completely lost on, and yet this film had me lost. I mean, I, uh, in a beautiful way. Yeah, it's an extraordinary film, and I think the thing that's stood out the most for me about the duke of burgundy is its exploration of female masochism i can't think of another film i think i said this at the time that explores masochism in such an astute manner so in line with some of the the psychoanalytic theories about masochism and fantasy and and role play and so on just an yeah a wonderful work of art and it's actually really poignant and it, it, you could take replace that sadomasochistic relationship with just a more conventional relationship uh, easily enough it's just that same poignancy uh, connected with a relationship not quite or struggling, you know, the, the troubles that any couples have. It's, uh, I think it's very relatable. But the real beauty of this too is that for those who haven't seen any of those films that this harkens back to, there's a whole world of them increasingly available. So look up folks like Valerian Budovchik and Alain Robegrier and just, oh, feast. Feast, <laughs> feast, feast. Eye candy. Three, triple, ah. Oh. Inherent Vice is the next film on the list. We're looking at our favourite films of 2015 here on Plato's Cave, and I thought a drug reference would be appropriate to lead into Inherent Vice, which is one of the films that appeared on my list and Josh's. The next cluster of films are all films that I think messed with genre, so they're all genre subversions. Uh, Inherent Vice, though, a film by Paul Thomas Anderson, an adaptation of the 2009 novel by Thomas Pynchon, was just this glorious, sprawling, film noir detective film, but set within the psychedelic Los Angeles of the 1970s and you know I think the the description that's been used to death still works think Raymond Chandler meets Hunter S. Thompson um, I just adore I, this is a film I did see twice I've, or, and I've gone and bought the Blu-ray it's over two and a half hours of multiple twists and turns larger than life characters and cameos paranoia melancholic social commentary uh, stoner logic you just get to experience the beginning of America's come down from the highs of the 1960s but it's one of the most fun and groovy nightmares I've ever had Josh Brolin filleting a banana. Of course. Dot, which dot com. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember the review we, when we did and Alex losing her shit about Josh Brolin and the banana. I was like, yep, I'm with you there. That was uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the highlights for me in cinema this year. And I got obsessed with eating a chocolate-covered <laughs> banana and I found a place in the city that sold them and then they were gone when I showed up. Oh, I still no. haven't had my chocolate banana. Something. To, there's always money <laughs> in the banana stores. There, was a, there was a place in the city that did them and stopped doing them and I had the same moment of rage. This sort of anti- Inherent vice. 
I um yeah, I, I love this. This was on my um my top list as well. And I just love the the worlds, but particularly this one that, that Anderson creates. And this was a, a world that I just enjoyed being in that space for even I think it was two and a half hours. But yeah. there was something so joyous about the cameos, the the energy and the fun. This wasn't this wasn't dark side Anderson. It was sort of playful Anderson, which I think was nice after the master where he got quite dark and serious. Yeah, loved it. Um, well, another film that messes with genre in a very interesting way is one we explored last week, and it's one that's on your list, Cerise. This is the German film. Phoenix. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a whole ton of uh, genre mishmash uh, afoot in Christian Petzold's latest film. Uh, a film noir set in uh, a Berlin in rubble. Uh, World War II has more or less ended, at least as far as Germany's concerned. Um, uh, yes, what did I, I had a nice little throwaway glib line for this. Some sort of plastic surgery disaster, Holocaust film noir, recombobulation of vertigo or some such. That, that, that's, that works. Yeah, that's that or thereabouts. <laughs> With, um, yeah, no, no small number of tips of the hat to any number of prior films and film movements, but also a film that is very self-contained narratively and actually very... Uh, emotionally potent um, there's a, an awful lot that hangs on a gorgeous Kurt Vile song, Speak Low um, it is for me one of the most satisfying conclusions in recent cinema and uh, just terrific performances and something which shows or demonstrates the, the merits of directors working regularly with key personnel here, the, the, his muse and um, regular actress Nina Hoss, uh, the cinematographer's name is possibly escapes me. Maybe it's Hans Froome or something very much like that. Alex is nodding yeah, furiously. No, I think it is. Yeah, the cinematography, beautiful cinemascope stuff. It's uh, gorgeous. And uh, I, I just thought this was a terrifically rich film that I, I don't doubt, though I, I need to test this hypothesis, but I don't doubt it will reveal more on future viewings. A film I think that took us all by surprise was the Spanish detective film Marshland which made its way onto your top ten, Alex. It did. In, in many senses there's nothing really that out of the ordinary on first glance at Marshland. Um, it, it's, it's very happy working within the kind of uh, cop buddy investigative genre um it's it's a spanish film with two cops one a kind of good cop one a kind of bad cop it's it's really not pressing you know it's not pushing back borders on on those kind of uh lines but what i really loved about this this film was just the the dynamic space it found within genre to really get into some massively political terrain um not just in terms of spain's own history but personal politics um there was just so much going on in this film it was very much promoted uh, when it was released outside of spain it was huge in spain won a lot of uh, goya awards it was a very big deal when it was released overseas especially in america it was very much on the back of um true detective and i think it was very much kind of plugged as a kind of spanish true detective but of course they they were made around the same time i believe um i i personally find marshland much more satisfying than um than true detective on a lot of levels i'm so glad you gave a mention to marshland that was great yeah, well, i love that film yeah uh well another film about uh enforcing the law is one that alex and josh selected which does undermine a lot of generic expectations and that's sicario and josh you weren't here when you when we talked about that so why don't you take it away now i was shaking my fist at the radio no we won't talk about the critical reaction to the let film. it go let it go let it, um sicario yeah look this film and the, the french canadian director yeah, Denis, that's, the, that's the third french canadian Denis, uh, Denis Villeneuve. look i thought this was a really extraordinary tense 
uh, work which I thought was doing some very interesting things, particularly on the levels of of gender and cultural politics from a sort of an outsider perspective of that Canadian perspective or Canadian gaze, if such a thing uh, exists. And I thought perhaps the most interesting thing for further critical exploration at, at another time is the way in which Emily Blunt's character, the FBI agent who's sequestered into this task force with Josh Brolin and Benicio Del Toro, is quite passive in many ways. And I thought he was doing some really interesting stuff in terms of audience identification by putting the audience almost offside and in a very uncomfortable position by identifying with her character in the very troubled cartel Mexican-American border framework that the film explores. I um I very much had my two cents worth when we covered this <laughs> a couple of months ago. I I mean I find it I, I, Villeneuve is one of really one of my favourite directors working at the moment. I'm I'm really excited about seeing what he does in the future, including I believe he's still slated for the Blade, Blade Runner, Runner yeah. the Blade Runner sequel, um, yeah. which I actually wasn't that interested in until I heard that it was Villeneuve uh, involved in it. I think um, he's just a remarkable director. I really like the I, I like a lot of the politics going on in this film. I like the idea of a French Canadian director making an american film or a, a, a united a u.s film about mexico i think there's some really interesting geopolitical stuff going on there on, on top of all the gender politics and yep. things like that i think that this is a film very much about quote unquote the americas and very tense and that score is extraordinary i mean i think there's a there's probably my one of almost one of my favorite sequences of cinema this year is the scene on the freeway where where the camera is tracking above and it, it just builds and builds to a sort of rather violent crescendo. That's yeah, that, that French connection level. That is action. yeah, that's yeah. up there in terms of my fa- along with one from Rogue Nation. In case we don't mention it later, the um, the opera sequence in Mission Impossible. Oh Rogue yeah, Nation. yeah, yeah. They were, I mean, both those sequences are fantastic action sequences. And the year I think has been quite good for for action filmmaking. Um, I'm going to throw in a mention for It Follows, the uh, horror film that I think references an enormous amount of horror films, gives it its own kind of very dreamlike. Um, yeah, these beautiful dreamlike tracking shots that just gave it this very mysterious kind of almost ephemeral air and I don't think committed to any reading whatsoever and I loved it. This was a, a film where the, t- the mood and the style is what dominated the experience for me and I, I, this year I've realised I'm not as big a horror fan as I thought. I think it's because I've been outnumbered by serious horror fans and, and, but I really latched on to this one as a film that I found genuinely frightening and, 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 and just really engaging. I mean, there's all sorts of ideas that are kind of thrown at the wall there that you can take or leave. You know, Freud's notion of the uncanny is certainly played with. There's a bit of a nod to 1950s Cold War paranoia in that, you know, your enemy could be anybody and there's some sort of post-AIDS bodily horror going on in this film as well but mostly I just loved the feel of it. It was uh, it was creepy and I, talking about great soundtracks, I thought it had a, had a killer soundtrack as well. We had some really good black comedies this year. So moving from more general talk on genre to some very specific uh, genre films. Well, no, none of these are genre films at all. But they all contained a really savage, dark humour. And one of those films, Cerise, is A Pigeon Sat mm. on a Branch Reflecting <laughs> on Existence, which I know you adored. Yeah, I do. I just love Roy Anderson. I'm told he's a very nice man. It's um, hard to believe entirely on the, the basis of this film, which actually, to be fair, for the, the first uh, five-sixths of it is actually quite amiable, if still darkly humoured. But this has one hell of a sucker punch. Mm. Uh, and this... Uh, he has a, He's eked out a very... 
distinctive style. You know one of his films as soon as you see it. Uh, the Swedish people, he is a Swede, are uh, extremely sickly in Roy Anderson's universe, film universe. Um, many of them are extremely miserable. They all deliver their line readings in an exceedingly deadpan way and the futility of existence just hangs heavily over every single scene in his films, whether they're... Um, a more absurdist tableau in a more obvious sort of perhaps anachronistic way as in this film where a bunch of uh, cavalry types from I forget which king now but pertaining to Swedish-Russian battles many centuries prior, or at least a couple um, just turn up in a, a contemporary pub in the middle of nowhere in Sweden um, or, or just uh, some addresses to camera that are just gleefully um, silly, but this film ultimately, like his its predecessors have a lot to say about Swedish um, recent history and some of its more um, dubious collaborations with the Nazis in particular and some in this film it really brings to light some uh, icky colonialist shenanigans on the parts of the Swedes and the, the last two scenes in this film are utterly unforgettable and really very upsetting. <laughs> she laughs. Yeah, I laugh because they are also very funny and you just have to admire the chutzpah and, um, <laughs> and uh, ingenuity. And I mean, who even thinks of that? That's really fucked up. <laughs> uh, Seriously. Another black comedy was Wild Tales. Alex, this was one of your picks. You had a couple of Spanish films this year. I like my Spanish films. Yeah. Um, Spanish language films. Argentina as well, I think, is really... And this is a Spanish-Argentine co-production, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, Pedro Almodovar, I think, was one of the executive producers. He was. his brother, too. Yep. Mm. Uh, Ricardo Duran, the great Ricardo Duran, is in this, who I believe was in the original version of Secret in Their Eyes. Yes, the remake does. just yes. got... Yep. Which, he has the eyes. He has um, the eyes. I love... This is a, um anthology film. Four... Was there four films? Five films? Five. No, there's more than um, four. Well, I think five. Yeah. Five, and they were all varying yep. lengths. They were all quite different lengths. I just... Loved it. I think that an anthology film, usually they're a bit wobbly. I think it's a fairly standard thing with anthology films and that some are really strong, some are really weak or almost like filler. And this really didn't feel like that to me. I think that they were just the perfect, they were just pitched perfectly. They, they, weren't, they weren't overlapping narratives, but they were ordered in a way that was um, tonally logical to me. And they were very, very dark and very, very funny. The final story about a bridezilla, I think is the colloquial term. Um, is an image that, that one of my favourite images of the year actually is just this bride going completely mental at her wedding um, for reasons. I mean, it's it's beautiful. And the final film that we're going to mention in terms of being a black comedy, this is one of the two films tonight that all four of us have placed in our top ten. It's The Lobster. Josh, you only just got to see this recently and I think we all breathe a collective sigh of relief when you found out that you loved it so much because it was one close to our hearts too. And, and so did I. Um, this was a film that you reviewed when I was away. I think all of you said, you need to see this film, I think you'd love it. And it, that's always, that always puts an enormous pressure on someone <laughs> in case they don't. It's the worst thing to say, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I went in with pretty high expectations of this film and having never seen the director's... Jorgos um Any of his previous films, like Dogtooth or anything to compare it to, but the appealing mix of just absurdism, dark humour, the sort of earnestness at points as well, the strange sense of detachment and also the emotional connection, the performances across the board... I, 
I, look, I mean, I'm still processing this. I only, only saw it a few days ago, but yeah, I loved it. It's 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 such an appealing, strange film. And again, we talk about endings and the ending of Phoenix before as being one of the best. I think this is up there with some of the best the best endings of the year. Quick shout out to Colin Farrell's moustache too, Thomas. <laughs> no. I think we, we bonded over that to some degree. We did. We may have even exchanged silly images over Twitter, which is <laughs> which is I think foreplay in this in 2015. Hashtag the Lobster, yeah, uh, wonderful film. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. We're looking at our favourite films of 2015. 3 Triple R. Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. That's going to kick off the next sort of loose grouping of films I've put together for our... Um, Favourite films of 2015 show, and this are films that deal with life, the universe, and everything. And Birdman is one of those films that touched on an enormous amount of um, of topics from social media to what is the purpose of art, to what is the role of the critic, to what is the point of, of, of anything, really. Michael Keaton in a comeback role, playing an actor, trying to have a, have a comeback, this faked long shot. Uh, I adored this film. I fell in love with this film about this time last year in advanced screening and rushed back to see it again as soon as I could. Uh, it's my favourite film of the year and it's also appeared on your top ten, Josh. Yeah, look, I've seen this three times now and I think it holds up to multiple viewings. The way in which it explores... Well, look, I think one of the key things is the way in which the style of this film, filming it almost exclusively in long single takes, isn't just there as a, as a gimmick. It's there to explore this idea of the worlds, the blurring of the worlds between the, the theatre world and the, and the offstage world, the, the reality and fantasy and the, you know, this idea of the theatrical persona and that, that the film is clearly exploring. And I just fell in love with it. I thought there was, this film just seemed to work for me on pretty much every level. Uh, another film that kind of had a, a major cultural impact this year that appeared on Cerise, your list and my list was Inside Out, the, the the return to form for Pixar Animation Studios. A spectacular return to form. Yeah. This is one of the smartest uh, films, uh, animated films, uh, well, perhaps period. I think um, children and adults relate to this on entirely different levels. Uh, it, in exploring a psychic landscape of a young girl, it uh, does a wonderful job of visualising all the elements of that landscape, all of the things that make somebody tick, and does a tremendously moving... Um, it gives a tremendously moving sort of account of how we might move on as we mature from just ex- experiencing life in fairly simplistic black and white fashions, though extremely colourful in the film, to actually rather more complex, murkier uh, emotional terrain. And when, when her psycho landscape begins to break down and uh, little characters running within it, including her joy, who is suddenly a bit less joyous, and especially her sadness, who is a tremendously moving character, uh, meet up with, uh, I think, her imaginary friend and wind up being dragged through the abstract thought centre <laughs> of her brain is just one of the most wonderful moments of, of cinema for me this year. A, a hilarious release in European animation yeah. tribute. But this film is so full of uh, inventiveness, um, but never sacrificing uh, emotional content for one moment. It is tremendously moving. I was bawling my eyes out by the end of this film. Which is good, because it is a film that tells us sometimes it's okay to feel sad. That's the lesson from the film. It's quite a profound, sophisticated message. I I love this film. Uh, Speaking about feeling sad, uh, the only documentary to make our list is one I've selected, which uh, absolutely just destroyed me, Uh, The Salt of the Earth, a film I still have trouble talking about. I was so overwhelmed by it. It's a film made by the German director of Inventors, with Juliano Ribeiro Salgado, who is the 
the son of the subject of the film, Sebastião Salgado, uh, a beautiful f- photographer who, in the middle part of his career, uh, dedicated his life to documenting displaced people and captured some of the most heartbreaking images of, of human rights abuse and, and disaster and, and humanitarian crises. Uh, this is the work of an artistic genius that we see in this film, and Vendors, I think, does really does justice. It's a profoundly moving film about a, a humble, kind and remarkable man. Um, that's why I yeah, no, <laughs> selected it. It deals with the big issues. It's an extraordinary <laughs> film, yeah. Let's let's move on before we all start welling up. Well, we were talking about Life, the Universe and Everything films, so these are kind of kind of deep and moving films. Cerise, we're going to look at another one that you selected, Leviathan from Russia. Yeah, look, Andre, uh, here we go, Zviagentsev. That's not too bad. Uh, is a, a master filmmaker. Uh, his most recent film, Leviathan, puts us in a contemporary backwards Russia where uh, a very proud man is battling seemingly fairly uh, futilely forces much greater than him, uh, some semblance of a, a Russia of old never having um, been overthrown. Uh, and while this is a, a, a very... Uh, middle of nowhere place is still hints of urban life mostly in the form of nasty panel buildings that are a blight across all of the eastern european landscape uh where corruption is just uh part of the fabric of this landscape as well as some enormous bony leviathan on the beach there's some stunning imagery and lots of biblical referencing uh, but what it really is is pitting um, the smallness of an individual against the, the machinery of, of corruption and, and how this just takes a terrible toll, not just on one person, but on a community. And it's just a, a consummately well-made film made uh, with no flash, just all classical film language, uh, great compositions and real emotional weight um, timeless themes and it's powerful yeah. and a really exquisite Philip Glass soundtrack mm. as well if I recall correctly yeah extraordinary film uh, now the final film in this little segment on life the universe and everything Josh was Knight of Cups which did actually this was one that did divide us I really liked it you really liked it uh, you weren't here when we spoke about it and it appeared on your top 10 it did yeah, Terence Malick uh, is apparently a little divisive in, in contemporary <laughs> cinema critical circles. Look, I don't have the time to defend it now, and I wasn't here when we did review it. But look, look, I'm an unashamed uh, Malick fan. I think he's developing as a filmmaker, despite the the majority of the critical response to this film seeing him as indulging a form of pretentious self-parody. But for me, I think what won me over and what continues to interest me with Malik is the way in which he has developed from from the tree of life through to the wonder and beyond a kind of this idea of searching for meaning, which is the kind of at the core of, I think, a lot of his films, beyond just Christianity or, or nature versus grace. And here we have it, this kind of collection of, of uh, philosophies through, you know, some mythopoeticism, tarot, Christianity still in there, but the representation of women, he does something quite different here. And structuring the film almost his, in his most radical manner through a series of vignettes with Christian Bale and his relationships with women, I thought was really interesting. I think there's a lot of stuff in this film to, to get my teeth into, at least. We've got four films left to discuss here on Plato's Cave, four more of our favourite films from 2015, and I've left all the Australian ones to last because I thought this was a really strong year in Australian cinema and it deserves the recognition that we're about to give it. Let's start with one of yours, Alex. 
partisan. Partisan. I've been waiting here quietly to talk about partisan. Um, one of my surprises for the year by by a long, long shot. I, I'm a big Vincent Cassell fan. I think that's on the record. Um, this is his best film for me by a long shot. I think that this is just a remarkable film for a number of reasons. Di- uh, directorial debut, I think, featured directorial debut for Ariel Kleiman. Is that correct? Correct, yes. yes. He's coming yeah, from he's shorts background. Shorts yep. background. Um, I love the art direction of this film. I love uh, the music. There's a beautiful use of karaoke in a very shrewd way. It's mm. a kind of collaged world that's kind of stuck together and glued together. It's a beautiful aesthetic that runs through this film. What really struck me is that this is really one of the most fascinating and powerful and sensitive films, I think, about fatherhood and masculinity that I've seen for a really long time. Um, and Cassell is, I mean, it's a cliche, but that, you know, that the role that you were born to play, like this really changes how I think I will see Vincent Cassell films in the future. Um, just remarkable. I think this kind of idea of masculinity is very easy to do in film through a kind of testosterone drunk filter and this film really steers away from that yet still still deals quite explicitly with these kind of masculine tropes like uh, violence I think is a really key, the way that violence functions in the universe of partisan is dealt with in just an intriguing way and how it's responded to. I really like that this film seemed to be from everywhere and nowhere. It, uh, where was it set? When was it set? Uh, who were these people? Who were the people they were trying to assassinate? It was so many mysteries so many accents <laughs> Um, so much of Vincent Cassell's teeth. Oh, he's so toothsome. <laughs> Cerise, one of the um, other, one, the next filming I look at is one you selected, which was pretty high up in my. It almost made my top ten as well. And this was The Dressmaker, uh, another yeah. film I think took us all by surprise. We were not expecting to love this film and so this much. This could certainly have belonged in your earlier category of uh, just a genre confounding oh, yeah, film. I mean, this one yeah. is just and family. And yeah, yeah, in fact, this is this film is everything. Um, it's uh, Australian gothic, grotesque, uh, black comedies. Uh, eventually some sort of well it, it begins with a vaguely wake and fright vibe throw in, throws in some Gilda references and uh, Judy Davis chewing scenery up like nobody's business Kate Winslet just owning the screen and lots of Australian familiar faces and character actors just either hamming it up or just be playing ugly except for Liam Hemsworth who's extremely comely and to good effect and to as we discussed I think at some length real real uh, female gaze eye candy he's, he's definitely positioned thus uh so jocelyn morehouse and partner pj hogan have confected this really quite extraordinary film i just didn't see coming uh with any number of tributes to to australian films prior including of course priscilla with hugo weaving's cross-dressing cop who's just delightful and um yeah, this film leads a few different sorts of tastes in the, the back of the mouth by the by the end of it but i, I just thought it was um an unwholesome delight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another Australian film is one I selected, which is Holding the Man, the, um, uh, the, the film adaptation of the 1995 memoir by aspiring actor Timothy uh, Coingrave uh, about his relationship with the captain of the school uh, football team, John Kaleo. Um, this was a, a book I wasn't aware of, but of enormous importance to a certain generation of, of p- predominantly gay gay men. Um, both, and I have read the memoir, and I think the film is a beautifully uh, sophisticated adaptation that teases out all the really important aspects of this story. Um, it, it does two things. It, it looks at the growth of... Gr- the growth of queer identity politics from 1976 to 1995, and it's also just a gorgeous, beautiful, heartfelt love story that's not afraid to um, have a lot of fun with the sexy scenes uh, either. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I'm not too sure why I connected so strongly with this film. I just think it's beautifully acted. It's, it's very well directed. I found it uh, very moving. And, yeah, it's one of the few ones I've gone to see twice this year. And a great masturbation scene. And we talked at length about the masturbation scene. Yeah, we got feedback from that. Yeah. We did. <laughs> Thanks, social media. <laughs> uh, it was a hell of a film. All right, we've got one film left to mention and this is the second film tonight that all four of us agreed on it's another australian film we have alluded to this year being very strong in action cinema i'm pretty sure everybody listening may have guessed what this final film may be we dedicated an entire show to it mad max (laughs) fury road my world is fire and blood. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting all year to do that. Yeah, as, or as it should have been called or could have been called Furiosa, colon, Fury Road. For me, this was not just the blockbuster of the year. This was easily one of my favourite films of the year. Such a visceral um, cinematic experience. I had my adrenal glands going into overload, my tear ducts going into overload. This is a film, I think you spelled it out perfectly at the, at the time, Alex, that proves that you know um, mainstream cinema can explore issues of, of gender with a, a degree of complexity that we haven't really seen up until this point. Shelley's there on. She won't I don't doubt whether she'll get the accolades that she should, but it's one of the great performances of the year. I thought she was extraordinary. And this, just from a visual point of view, to see a director who has such a clear idea of this world of fire and blood and storm and, and engine fumes, yeah, this was just a, an extraordinary work of art. And so perilous for all involved. You get the impression. All of these uh, the cinematography, all these amazing aerial shots, um, Cameras swooping in from above to then join the sides of these convoys of bizarre, monstrous vehicles, um, some seemingly not just tipping the hat to the previous Mad Max films, but even to its own predecessors, especially Australian exploitation film-wise, and the cars that ate Paris especially. I saw a lovely little porcupine vehicle there that just <laughs> made my that heart... That was a great detail, yeah. Yeah, oh. And Tom Hardy doesn't actually have to do a lot in this film, but has great presence, but really it's not about Tom, it is about Charlie's... And it's just about relentless action. I mean, it's just so exciting because you feel it to be so real and you fear for all involved. And uh, it's just so, so so tremendously exciting and a bit of a bellwether moment, I think, for action cinema because I think people increasingly are going to just want to be weaned off digital effects because when you know they're not really real, not things aren't there, they're not palpable, where's the peril? Well, it's interesting that when the new Mission Impossible film came out shortly after this, which was also a great film, the marketing was really making a point of saying these are practical stunts and, you know, the the actors in many scenes did their own stunts. So I think it's starting to affect film culture already and that's a good thing. Fury Road, I mean, I I said at the time, I was weeping, just that sudden realisation that that this is what a blockbuster looks like when dude bros aren't in charge. I I have very little memory of what that would be like. And the thing that I think gets lost in my my personal excitement about the, the politics of this film is just how good an action film it is. I just don't think that can be said strongly enough and and I think you guys are all in agreement with that. I mean, it's just a remarkably strong action film that doesn't that isn't dumbed down. That's um, it's a character. perfect. That's, yeah, that's it's just what a perfect gives it its gravity. Yeah. It's it's so immaculately linked in in its rhythm to the mythology of the Mad Max. It's related to the previous films in the same kind of way that they're related to each other. I love the this sense of um, the temporality that that runs through this entire franchise. I think just from the perspective of a franchise, it's a great number four. 
it's yeah. exactly the direction that it should be going. Mad Max Fury Road, it's done extremely well this year and for very good reason. And I think that brings us to the end of our favourite films of 2015. I'll put the full list of all these films up on the Triple R website, so on the Plato's Cave page. You can also use that page to link to, to find us on Facebook and Twitter or go to Plato's Cave Film on both Facebook and Twitter. You can also reach us, Plato's Cave Film at gmail.com. Uh, this was our final show for 2015. We'll all be back in February next year to see what 2016 has to offer. A big thank you to all the staff at Triple R, especially Program Manager Beck Hornsby, Station Manager Dave Houchin, and Talks Producer Elizabeth McCarthy. Thank you to all our filling panellists during the year for when I haven't been around to operate the desk. Thank you to Hayley Inch, who filled in as a guest presenter on a number of shows. And thanks to everybody who's tuned in or downloaded the podcast. We did have our 200th show last week, and during Radiothon, we doubled our subscribers. Thank you, Josh, who's been doing, with this, who's been doing this with me from, be- from the beginning. <laughs> Cerise, who's been doing this with us since we graduated from podcast to a regular on-air show. And Alex, who joined us this year and instantly became an essential part of the team. I think we've done all right. Yep. We're out of here. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.